0: Uh, My name is Bill Walker, for those of you who may not know me, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Uh, We are in the midst of an expository series out of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever preached by the greatest person who ever lived, none other than Jesus Christ himself. Well, we have finally hit kind of a milestone in our journey. We have transitioned from chapter 5 to... Chapter 6, yes! So if you would take your Bibles this morning, join me today in Matthew chapter 6 as we slowly but surely make our way through this fascinating material. You know, we have been on a journey with Jesus over the last number of weeks, and I don't know if there's another way to really put it other than Jesus has led us into the Himalayas uh, of morality and of self-sacrifice, but he has drawn us out of the very valleys and depths of things like anger and sexual lust, manipulation and payback. He has drawn us out of these dark places where it's, it's selfishness and it's all about me. And he has moved us into the very heights to see the grandeur of who God is, and to see how God wants to work in and through our lives to ultimately touch the lives of other people to the glory of God the Father. And it has been a tough, tough journey. But Jesus' stated goal in the Sermon on the Mount for his followers is that you are salt and you are light. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." It's a radical transformation of life that Jesus calls us to. It's no longer just doing what I want when I feel like it, but it's literally coming behind Jesus. And the good life is a life of following Jesus and loving obedience, and doing good out of a heart that is becoming good in him. He summarized this, this experience. If you will, last Sunday, when we finished the message, we hit the pinnacle of the Himalayas. And there's a tall mountain on earth called Mount Everest, yes. Mount Everest is is the tallest mountain on earth. When you go above the 26,000-foot level, you hit what's called the death zone. It's that short distance to the top. Well, Jesus went through the death zone, and he went to the top in the pinnacle of Mount Everest of the Christian experience last week. When he stuck the flag in the top by this statement, you therefore must be what? As your heavenly Father is? Now you're starting to think, well, Jesus, you know, when you get up to that height, you know, the oxygen's not so good. People start to see and think funny things. You know, Jesus, did you really mean that we're supposed to be perfect? And people want to soften this word perfect with words like mature, or complete. Now, the word teleos, which is used here, is translated elsewhere with that word. But when you're doing a a, a direct connection between one verb and another, or one word and another, God the Father is, and he therefore calls us to be, how is that even possible? How is that even possible? Let me see if I can explain it briefly, just very briefly, but I think this will be helpful. Uh, When we are called into relationship with the living God, Um, what he does is he sends his son into our lives and he shows us our need of him and so we repent of our sin, we embrace Christ by faith. When we do that, the Bible calls that justification, declared righteous based upon Christ and not ourselves. We are given a relationship with the living God. Now, at that moment, we begin this journey and this journey is called sanctification. It is the continual setting apart of our lives to become more like the life of Christ. Another word for that is discipleship. And this journey will ultimately culminate in something called glorification. Either when we die or Christ comes back from us, the moment we see him, we will be like him. So this whole thing, justification, sanctification, and glorification, is what the Bible calls salvation. It begins with justification by faith. It moves into sanctification, the process that we're now talking about, and will ultimately culminate in perfection in his presence. So we'll never be perfect here, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to be perfect here. I don't know about you, but before God, my heart is, I want to be perfect, Father. I want to be perfect. I want to, I want to live a life that so honors you. I want to live a life that so shows you. I want to live a life that is the best life that I can live this side of heaven. I don't know if that's your heart or not, but that's what I want. And that's what we're talking about, striving towards this life of ultimate perfection. Uh, Again, C.S. Lewis, with his very wise words from his great book, Mere Christianity, the command to be ye perfect is not idealistic gas. I don't even know what that is, but it makes me laugh. So I don't know what it is nor is it a command to do the impossible, but he is going to make us ultimately into creatures who can ultimately obey that command, and that's when we finally step into his presence. But along the way, we're growing into that presence, becoming more like him. And so the last verse of chapter five, where he says that you are to be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect, leads us into this next section. So what has happened is we have finished largely the instruction portion of what it means to live the good life, a life of peace, fidelity, integrity, and selfless love. And now we move into what I would call the interior, the interior of the good life. How is it we are ultimately going to realize this transformation? Well, um, it is as we start to live a secret life of holy habits, worshiping our Father, And that gives birth to this next section, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, deals with the fact of when you give, when you pray, when you fast, you are slowly exercising those disciplines of life that will make you more and more like him. Today, with your Bibles open, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we're going to look at this portion together this morning. It goes on to say this in the interior of our lives. Beware... Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, the word righteousness there is your acts of devotion. For then, they will have, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites in the synagogues in the streets do, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward." But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that, in order that, your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will what? Do you want to be rewarded by God? Ow! Let's start to unpack this in just a minute. Let's pray together. Well, Father, thank you Uh, Thank you for being so forthright with us through this portion of Scripture. Uh, And thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect example of what it means to truly follow and love the Father. Lord, uh, we are so far from that image, but I just pray that today we would understand a little better how we can take on more of that image in this unique um, lifestyle of worshiping you through these holy habits. So Father, uh, grant us your help Your understanding, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So, Jesus is continuing on with this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, So he is standing on uh, a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there's a whole group of people there standing and listening to him. Uh, he didn't have the benefit of handing out materials or mimeographed notes or mimeograph that's old. Yeah, photograph notes or, or anything like that. So what Jesus had to do in an oral culture was he had to speak in such a way that their ears would capture what he was trying to say. So Jesus would use these mnemonic devices or this repetition of phrases to kind of group thoughts so that the people listening could make sense of what he was saying. That's particularly true here in Matthew chapter six verses one through 18. So notice with me if you would, I'd like you to read the yellow as I read the white. So you wait till I read the white, then you read the yellow, deal? Okay, I think we understand each other, good. Even though I don't talk straight, Um, here we go. Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Okay, in verse 2, he says, thus, when you give to the needy, verse 4. Again, in verse 5, and when you pray, verse 6. Uh, He goes on to say in verse 16, and when you fast, verse 18. So you see what Jesus is doing. Verbally, he is connecting this section together in the minds of the hearers so that they can ascertain what he was trying to say. It's not only a a way of grouping things and making them memorable, but it's also a way of getting his point over. Now, I want to just give you a few observations out out of this section. And then after the observations, I want to kind of drill down a little bit into this idea of of a spiritual practice called giving, giving to God. So the first thing I want you to notice uh, in these words that Jesus gives is that Jesus Christ expects, simply expects it to be a natural result in the lives of his followers that they will simply give, that they will simply pray, and that they simply will fast. That should be part of their lives. Because notice what he says. He says, when you... When you, when you, not if you, and he's not even commanding you, he simply assumes that these things will be true in the lives of those who follow him. And each of these things, giving, praying, and fasting, are what we would call spiritual habits or practices, habits of the heart that we use to nurture our relationship with the Father. And again, that's the second thing I want you to notice is the repetition of the use, Father, Father. Did I say that right? I'm like for Maine, and that's one of those words for Maine I just cannot say correctly. Uh, One of those is idea, did I say that one right? Okay, yeah, you know, um, yeah, I won't go down that path. So uh, there's some words that I really flub up. You laugh, that's okay, I get used to it. Uh, But one of those is father. Uh, And so in in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five, six, and seven, uh, what you see is the use of the term father 18 times. So the, the, the father is weaved all through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus came to expose to us who the Father is. But when you get to this section in verse, chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, the name of the Father is used 10 times. 10 times. So again, he's putting high emphasis on the fact that these spiritual practices are designed to nurture this relationship with the Father. If we're supposed to be perfect as He is perfect, the only way that can happen is as we engage the Father, get to know and understand Him and grow in our faith in Him. So that again is what these practices are. Uh, so. The the first thing is he wants you to understand that these are natural practices of your Christian experience. Secondly, that it is in relationship to your father. But thirdly, there's a warning. There is a warning. Beware of practicing your righteousnesses, and these are your spiritual practices, i.e., giving, praying, and fasting. Beware of practicing these things before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now again, Jesus is speaking into the culture of his day, into the context in which he lived. In that day, there were this group of people called uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, and the scribes. They were the religious establishment. And that religious establishment had gotten so good at performing these ritualistic sacrifices, so good at what they were doing, that they were professionals. I mean, these guys were good. In fact, the words to be seen, in the original language, the Greek, is actually used of the theater. So these guys were really polished. These guys were really good. They were like actors performing various rituals for everybody to see and think, wow, they're super awesome. They're like really spiritual. They're like, wow. And so these guys were really, really good at that. In fact, Jesus went on to use another word to describe a theater scene. Uh, In verse 2, he says this. When you give to the needy, do not sound a trumpet before you as, what's the word? That's right, hypocrite. Now, in our minds, hypocrite's a bad thing. But in that day, it was actually a term used of an actor, a performer. A hypocrite was somebody who would put on a false face, a mask, would play out a part and, and do it in a professional way. And so again, what he is saying about the religious establishment of his day is they were doing much of what they were doing for the eyes of people. They were doing it to impress others. They were nothing more than actors on a stage. And what happens when the performance is over? If you're acting on the stage, you take a bow and everybody. Yeah. He goes on to say this, you have received your reward. That's the reward you're going to get. If you're doing this for the eyes of people then the reality is I hope it was a good performance. And I hope they clap really loud and really long because that's all you're getting out of this. Now these guys were good. I mean, they were really, really good. When it came to this thing of giving, uh, there was in the temple precinct this area called the treasury. And this is where the people of God would come and give their uh, offerings to, to the maintenance of the temple and to the Lord. In the treasury, there were 13 treasury boxes. And so these boxes were fairly large, and there was like a a trumpet, uh, a horn, that came out of it. And uh, so it was large and funneled down to a very small neck. And so it was their ritual, their habit, their practice, to take their offerings, these religious leaders, and they would go to the money changers, and they would exchange it for the smallest denomination they could get, so they could have as many coins as they possibly could carry. And so they would dump it into their, their robes, and they would hang it off their stuff. And so they would get over to this big trumpet thing, and they would take it out and they'd go, whoa. And that wasn't it. They would do it again and again and again. Everybody's like, whoa. They are super givers, man. This is amazing. In fact, there were actually some guys who were so astute that they could actually take a handful of change and they could wing it like that. It would hit the edge of this funnel and it would go around and it would go around and it would go around until it hit the coins inside. And everybody's like, dude. Everybody was really impressed. I hope so, because that's all they're getting from God. You did it for the eyes of men. You practiced this for people to see. They're impressed. Congratulations. Congratulations. So there is this possibility that when we do these habits, which are meant to be secret in nurturing our relationship with the Lord, we can actually do it for the eyes of people. And so it's about motive. It's about the heart. Now, let me just say this. Uh, I feel like I have to give a little caveat here because uh, Jesus did say that the goal... Uh, In doing these spiritual practices in our lives is that we will become salt and light and that people would see our good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. This is part of those good works. It's about giving, praying, and fasting. So I just want to add this little thought. So Jesus does not mean that we must always hide our good deeds. He does not say that it is wrong to be seen giving. Rather, it is wrong to give to be seen. Understand the difference? It's about motive. He does not say, and we'll talk more about this next week, he does not say that it's wrong to be seen praying, but rather it is wrong to pray in order to be seen. And so these things we should do and can do with the other people watching, but the goal is not that they are watching. They just happen to be there as we give these things to the Lord. So, number one, we should naturally be doing praying uh, or giving, praying, and fasting. Uh, Number two, this is all about our relationship with the Father. His name is mentioned 10 times in these 18 verses. Number three, there is a warning that we must be careful to make sure this is out of motive for the Lord and not just for others to watch. And then lastly, and I want to focus in on this and move forward, is that there's a promise of a reward. How many times does it say, and you will be rewarded? He says, when you give to the needy, you will get a reward when you pray to the father you will get a reward when uh, you fast before the father who sees in secret you will get a reward how many want a reward from God oh my gosh I, I would like a reward from God I really want God to bless my life I really want to know what this is 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 meant to be well let me explain to you what I believe he's talking about here Coming off, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And his emphasis on these secrets, uh, these secret habits of the heart, I believe the great reward that God wants us to have is himself. He wants us to be able to personally experience him in our lives in such undeniable, such personal, such profound ways that that he reveals himself to us. Let me see if I can explain. Uh, Jesus, in speaking to Nicodemus, in John chapter three and verse eight, Nicodemus was really struggling with this idea of how how God works and all this stuff. He said, Nicodemus, it's like this. The spirit of God is like the wind, By the way, the word spirit and wind in the Bible are actually the same word in the the Hebrew. But the spirit of God is like the wind. You don't see the wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you can see the evidence of the wind as it bends the leaves and, and, and it moves the grasses. So too with the spirit. The spirit is not visible. You cannot literally look at the spirit of God. He doesn't have a corporal body. But what you can see is the evidence of his work in your life. So too with the Father. You cannot behold the Father. He is spirit. And no one has ever seen him. Now, Christ has been manifested to show us what the Father's like. But if you want to realize who the Father is, and if you want to see him in your experience, what you're going to do is he's like the wind. And what is he going to, he's going to blow through your life, and you're going to see him do things. His activity will be apparent. And when he does, have you ever noticed sometimes the wind blows and it catches the hair on your arm and do you get goosebumps? you know what goosebumps feel like? When God shows up and does unique, specific things in your life, you're gonna get goosebumps. The wind of God has blown through and left you undeniable evidence of his working in your life. That's what I believe the reward Jesus wants us to understand we can have is the reward of seeing the Father actively at work in our lives lives. You know, um, the Bible is filled with much knowledge about who God is. It is his revelation of who he is and what he is doing. And much of what we know about God comes from personal testimonies actually encapsulated in the Bible. But all of those testimonies are nothing more than second hand knowledge. The question is, do you personally have first hand knowledge of the work of God in your life. The Father wants to give that to you. This is the reward he wants you to have, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is real, that he is at work in your life. And one of the key ways is by giving. One of the key ways is by giving. Now, this section that Jesus is, is uh, given before us in verses 2 through 4 actually deal with almsgiving. But I, I'd like to move over and talk a little bit more about this. Generously trusting Father. Generously trusting Father. You know, there's very little in our lives that is more tangible than money. We work for it. We sweat for it. We have terrible drives to work for it. We put in long hours for it Also, we can have it. It is the commerce of our day. It is how we live and move and have our being in our culture. Well, it has always been the case. And so God says this, if you want your devotion to me to be very real, then one of the most real things you can do is honor me with your money. If you want to see me work in your life in undeniable ways, one of the ways I'm going to do that for you is I'm going to bring you experiences of meeting your needs that are undeniable you won't show up in your budget you can't you can't make this work and how how you're balancing everything i'm just going to show up and i'm going to give you those goosebump moments i want to share with you uh in the time that we have remaining we're going to observe the lord's table this morning together i want to share with you how god impressed this on my life so i'm going to give you my testimony if you will secondhand information for you but some of you have gone through this yourself and you have your own stories. So as I relate some of mine, if, you, if you're committed to God in this area of your life of giving consistently, again, you have a whole litany of your own stories. Think about those. Thank God for making himself real to you. But I have a feeling there's some folks sitting here today and you're like, I have no idea what you're really talking about, Pastor Bill. I, you know, it, it, help me. Okay, I'm here to help you. Giving giving to the Father, generously trusting the Father. This all came to a head for me, and uh, it was not easy for me to come to this realization, uh, back um, when I met my wife. Uh, This past week, uh, a good friend of mine took this picture. Um, He took this picture of his uh, beef herd in his front yard, uh, but in taking this picture, he also captured the home I grew up in. Uh, so this is the farm I grew up in on, East Oxford Road in South Paris, Maine. We had a, such a beautiful view there. Uh, these mountains actually went all the way around here and went all the way around to there as well. Over here was New Hampshire or Mount Washington, the highest peak on the eastern seaboard. And so this is where I grew up. I got a chance to breathe all this great fresh air when the cows weren't around, you know. <laughs> and, and so... Um, So uh, this farmhouse is where I met Jesus. Uh, In the dormer right there on June 6, 1985, I got down on my knees watching a Billy Graham crusade and I embraced Christ with my life. I really had no idea what I was doing, but all I knew is I was tired of my life and I needed somebody else to take over control. So that day I put my faith in Christ. A year later uh, on Memorial weekend, 1986, I went to church for the very first time. Do you realize what this last Sunday was it was Memorial Sunday do you realize it is 2016 and so Bambi and I came to the realize that we had met each other 30 years ago this last Sunday because the first day I came to church was the day I met my wife so um, so we we met and and got to know each other a little bit and uh, in 1987 after dating for a while I said to Bambi Carey I said Bambi will you marry me awkward pause, <laughs> fear, sweat. Finally, she said, yes, I will marry you. So that was in 1987. We decided to get married uh, on June or July 23rd, 1988, about a year away. And, and so we decided in preparation for that day and, and our life forward that we were both going to work really, really hard at our jobs, build up our bank accounts so when we got married, we'd bring the bank accounts together and have something to move forward on. And, and so we started working really, really hard. Now, Bambi uh, worked out at the local hospitals, uh, Stevens Memorial Hospital, and she was a receptionist, and she made, you know, basically minimum wage. And, uh, but something that my wife did that I didn't really know much about was she had established this habit early in her life of what is often referred to as tithing. She had learned early on that God gives us all that we have, And God wants us to acknowledge that by giving back the first and the best of what he gives us back to him as as a thank you. So she learned this habit long before I ever met her. And so she started working really hard at her minimum wage job with not as many hours as I was working. And she was doing this thing called tithing. I worked for the guy who took this picture. Old Glory Furniture Restoration. I was working like a dog. I was making better money than her. I was putting in more hours than her. And I was working, working, working. And in my mind, I've only been saved two years. I'm thinking, you know, Lord, I'm going to get married. You know, Lord, what I give really doesn't add up to a whole lot. So you know what, Lord, I'm just not going to give. I'm going to save. I'm sure you will understand. That was my thinking. So we did. We, we, we both saved and saved and saved and scrimped and saved. We didn't do a whole lot of additional dating things other than just getting together over that time period. When we got married uh, on uh, July 23rd, 1988, right after that, we brought our bank accounts together. And when we did, Bambi brought into our relationship significantly more money than I did. And I looked at this and I thought, there is no way, there is no way that you can do that. You were were given to God, you made less than I did, and you worked less hours than I did. I didn't give to God and I worked like a dog. How can this even be possible? And she said to me, in not so many words, I honored God, Bill. watershed moment. You know, really, seriously. At that moment, I realized, whoa, there is something to this about honoring God, and hence, God honors you. God rewards you. God shows up in ways that are inexplicable. Because if you did the math, when we first started out, there was no way she could bring more money into it than I could. And yet, she did. So, I learned three things at that moment. Thing number one that I learned was you can't outgive give God. You just can't. No matter how little it is, God is good, he's faithful. He will always make sure that you have everything that he requires and more. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things of life that you require, he gives to you. So God proved that to me. The second thing God showed me in that moment was the Holy Spirit sounds a lot like my wife. And that has rung true over and over in my life over many, many years. The third thing I realized was I wanted the blessing of God and you can't have the blessing of God if you're living in active, open disobedience. And so it just kinda all hit me in that moment. I get it, I get it. So right after we got married, we made the commitment that through thick and thin, good and bad, we were gonna, be, we're gonna honor God. That was just what we were going to do. And so we, we started tithing at that moment, and I was all in uh, because I understood how God began to work. So the question is, is God good? Can God show up? Can God do things that you can't account for and in so doing reveal himself to you? Like the wind that blows, bends the leaves, moves the grass. Does God make activity happen around you that's indescribable? I think he does. So what we did is uh, right after we got married, the next year, 1989, uh, I sensed that it was time for me to go to Bible school of all places. And so we were going to move from South Paris, Maine, four and a half hours north into New Brunswick, Canada. And so here's the Canadian uh, United States line, US, Canada. Uh, I was going to go to a little school in Victoria Corner, New Brunswick, Canada, right on the beautiful St. John River Valley. And uh, it was a school uh, that was very small, only had a couple hundred students, and it was called New Brunswick Bible Institute. Uh, it was where the senior pastor of the church we attended went. I thought he was a really cool guy. I thought if they could do that for him, maybe they could do that for me. And, and so I attended there. And, um, it was, it was awesome. Uh, the challenge was this. Um, Bambi, because we're Americans, could not work in Canada, so she would have to drive across the border. By the way, see this? What's that say? Yeah, 95 starts in the Florida Keys, right? Goes all the way up the eastern seaboard, goes through Maine, curves over, goes right across the border here into Canada, and it goes right into Woodstock, and notice it ends. Glorious 95 ends right there. By the way, there's a Lions Club right there. Somehow it should be bigger than, better than that. Don't you think? 95, 95. Okay, it it ends in Woodstock, New Brunswick, Canada at the Lions Club. Okay. Uh, That's all nothing. That doesn't mean anything. Okay. But, so she was going to drive from where we would live off campus all the way over here every day, and I would need a car to get back and forth to school. So I'm thinking, well, Lord, I need a vehicle. And we still were living in Maine, and we hadn't moved there yet. And so I worked with this guy called Doug Twitchell. And Doug Twitchell, in the summer, was a student at the University of Maine. So in the summers he had off, he worked with me. And Doug drove one of the world's greatest cars that has ever been made, the famous Plymouth Horizon. And so he had this car, and I thought to myself, and I only thought this to myself, I don't think I ever told anybody, but I thought, that's a college car. That's a college car. So, um, Bambi and I were driving around some of the roads in in South Paris, and uh, as we drove by one house, a little off the beaten path, we drove by, and some guy had a blue Plymouth Horizon sitting on his front lawn with a for sale sign on it. I thought, oh, this is too good to be true. So I walked up to this guy's house, and he came out, kind of rough, gruff manner, mm -hmm, matter of fact, and I said, how much is it? I didn't care about the mileage or even if it ran because I knew it was my car. And so I said, how much is it? And this is what he said. Uh, it's $400, or if you can bring cash by tonight, it's 300 I thought, that sounded weird. All I could think was the car is hot, man. He's moving it as quickly as he can. And I didn't want to be stuck with some hot car. Obviously, even if I got it, it wasn't a hot car. So I know, I know. So, um, so I, I didn't know what to make of that. So I got into the car, and I flipped open the glove compartment. And I pulled out the registration. Goosebump moment. I read the registration. It says the car was registered to a man by the name of Joseph Twofoot. You see, two days before this, a woman came into the business where I worked. And when she came in to bring her piece of furniture for us to do for her, she heard the Christian radio station playing. And she asked, Are you folks Christians? We said, yes, we know and love Jesus. She goes, Would you do me a favor? Would you pray for my son who's going through difficult alcoholism right now? We said, Absolutely. What's his name? She goes, His name is Joseph Twofoot. We'd never heard that name before. She says it. He supposedly owns this car. So I ran back to the business. I called the woman on the line. I said, Hello. Uh, Joseph's name's on a registration of a car that somebody else is selling. Did he really give it to that guy? She said, yes, he did. Awesome, click. I go back with 300 bucks, I hand it to the guy, and I got me my school card, just like that. All the while, I was having goosebumps. God, you got your hands all over this. This little car did us really well. I drove it for three years back and forth to uh, campus. Uh, it was really played out when I got it I mean really 300 bucks it wasn't much of a car when I got it but it went for three years and I managed to drive it back after after I graduated I drove it back into Holton, Maine I drove it into a junkyard where it died and the guy gave me $250 for it (laughs) goosebumps goosebumps this is what God does this is how he shows up And and so we were getting ready to move to New Brunswick, Canada, and we were going to move to Victoria Corner. We were going to stay in the upstairs apartment of an older couple who lived about five miles off campus. And and so um, we didn't have a job. She didn't have a job at this time. We didn't know how we were going to to make ends meet. We told our parents we were just packing up everything and moving there, and they're like, you're stupid. Nobody does that. Nobody moves to a foreign country without any income. But we knew God wanted us there, so we said, okay, we love you, whatever. Uh, So we, we moved. And, um, but before we moved, uh, I bought three months worth of health insurance. See, I had a new bride, and we were just newly married. You never know what might happen, so I bought three months worth of health insurance. Very expensive, but believing that, you know, this will kind of get us by. Well, when we finally made our way onto the camp, campus area there, uh, Bambi traveled over to Holton, Maine where sure enough, she ended up getting a job, and she ended up working for a company that was literally the first exit into the United States on that road, and it was none other than Smith & Wesson. So, I had a pistol-packin' mama now. (laughs) Uh, They make handcuffs there, and they made 22s. So, Bambi ended up getting a job there. Cool part, though, is you have to work there for a certain period of time before they'll give you health benefits. The very day that three months lapsed is the very day those health benefits came online goosebumps God showed up over and over and over again in undeniable ways because we put him first we chose to honor him and God has a way of showing up and honoring us in indescribable ways I wish I could tell you it was always easy at, at being at Bible school. It wasn't. Bambi drove for three years back and forth that route uh, to work, and she went through some of the worst winters you can imagine. Canada, winter, open highway, lots of winds, snow, bad stuff. But God protected her all the way. Um, food was a little bit of an issue. You know, we wanted to make sure we had enough to eat. And so fortunately, the people we lived over in this, this house, we had the upstairs apartment, were uh, Glenn and Phyllis DeLong. They were an older couple, probably in their 70s. Um, and Glenn, or Phyllis, uh, his wife, had this habit of every night cooking more than they needed. And so she would cook this big meal, and then Glenn would sit down. He ate like a hoss, or horse, sorry. And, and so um, he certainly ate more than his share. But every evening, she would come to the back stairs, open the door, and she would yell up, Bill, Bambi, I have leftovers. It's either you or the dog. <laughs> She'd put it down and shut the door. That was her loving way of saying she cooked us something. I don't know, it was just how she did it. But every night she would provide us with additional food that we just didn't know we had the opportunity to have. And so she gave us that, and the school, when it had extra food, would send it home with the students, the married students in particular. Uh, And uh, because I preached in New Brunswick, Canada, McCain's Foods, you know McCain, the big outfit that does like orange juice, and they do like French fries and all that stuff? They have a huge plant there, and if you preach in New Brunswick, Canada, they have a pastoral program where you got a free case of food every month. And so I would travel up to Florenceville, New Brunswick, and I would go inside this huge freezer area, and I would say, ooh, I preach. (laughs) Thank you. Every month, I would walk out of there with a case of food. All that to say, I don't know how it always works. I don't know how it all always comes together. But this much I know, if you honor God, he honors you. That's how that works. That is simply how that works. One more quick story. I got so many more, but I just want to share one more. Uh, after living in, in uh, New Brunswick, Canada, three more years, I pastored a church up in uh, upper uh, New Brunswick, Canada. Uh, we got, became landed immigrants. We received Canadian uh, medical while we were there. So while we were there, we had Mariah. And so that was a blessing. So she's our little Canadian. Uh, and so we, we, we had her on the Canadian nickel, if you will. And so we ended up moving uh, from there down to... Um, this area up in Lanham, Maryland. Uh, This is Good Luck Road in Lanham, Maryland. Uh, This is Forest Lake Apartments. It's a few miles down the road from none other than Washington Bible College, Capital Bible Seminary. So I was gonna move there, finish up college, and then go to seminary to get uh, more understanding so that I could give my life to this endeavor. And uh, the challenge was this. The two-bedroom apartment we needed because we had a child was $800 a month. Now, all of a sudden, that didn't sound so bad, but, you know, this was a long time ago, 1995. It was 800 bucks a month. The only way we could afford that, along with all the other parts of incidentals in life, was for Bambi to have to work. But our heart was that she could stay home with our daughter. And the father knew our heart. So I would call the lady who, who ran the apartments, her name was Nancy, and I would ask her, Nancy, what's the rent for the apartment we want? She would never tell me, because if she hired you to work maintenance, it was half the rate, 400 bucks a month. So I would call her, and I would call her, and I would call her, but she would never make a commitment. So finally, we had loaded up all our stuff into a U-Haul. We had driven down into Holton, stopped at an Irving truck stop. Uh, Bambi and, and Mariah got some food, and I went to a pay phone, and I just said, listen, we're driving down. I need to know what this is going to cost us so that I can bring money with me. And she said, your apartment will cost you $400. She never hired me. I never worked for her. But she gave us a rate that allowed Bambi to stay home with Mariah and for me to be able to go to Bible school at the same time. That was our heart's desire. That was what we longed for. and That's what God gave us. So uh, over the uh, five, six years we lived there, uh, she only went up incrementally on our costs. I never worked for her, but God provided in so many beautiful, beautiful ways. Again, it wasn't easy. Uh, I ended up working three part-time jobs at one point. Some, some weeks, our total food budget was $20. dollars Were 3 of us. But we never felt like we had the right to say, Sorry father, we can't trust you now. We need to take our money and do our own thing with it. We just kept trusting the Lord and every step of the way he showed up and was faithful. Eventually I got hired on as the admissions director at Capital Bible Seminary, uh, which meant I got free classes, ha ha. Which also meant that I got health coverage and that's when Elisha came along. And so it's funny, every time we needed health coverage, you see it wasn't mandated back then, we just kinda grabbed it where we could get it. We ended up having babies in both those places. All I can say is I'm glad I didn't have to go through that anymore. (laughs) Two's enough, two's enough. But I just want to say, this is what he does. This is my story. These are my God moments. This is how I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Father is real. He wants you to have your own God moments. He wants you to have... What I've discovered to be this tapestry of these moments that God weaves together as you walk with him and trust him. And this tapestry shows you that he is a good, good father and he is faithful no matter what. And that same tapestry ends up becoming your safety net. You don't have to worry about the future. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen. If you're living in a way that honors God, he's on the hook to care for you. He hasn't failed me to this point. I don't know what the future holds. Retirement, all that good stuff. I have no idea how he's going to provide all that. But this much I know. He is dependable. He is faithful. And he has given us a whole life of this so that we will not live in anxiety or fear, but in faith. This is what he wants you to do to have i could go on and on and on and on about how god provided as we moved on to potomac baptist church and on and on and on and on and on but it all goes back to that watershed moment for us when we discovered that god was more than capable of meeting our needs we stepped forward and we haven't stepped back since and god is good and so i guess my question for you as we close and get ready to uh, participate in, in uh bread and cup together is, are you generously trusting Father? Do you have your own experiences of God rewarding you with who He is? He wants you to have that. He so does. You know, I think it's interesting that we can trust God for our eternal destinies, but often we have a hard time trusting God with our budget or our checkbook. Why is it that we can trust him for eternity, but we can't trust him for the temporal? He wants you to trust him. Now, some of you have wonderful stories of how God has led and shown you himself through many years. I hope you've enjoyed reliving yours. I hope you've enjoyed it. Maybe some of you are going through a time of testing right now. You don't know how it's going to add up. You don't know how it's going to work, but you're seeking to be faithful. Let me assure you, he is faithful, and he will show up. Don't get discouraged. But if this is all new to you, God doesn't want to test you. He wants you to test him. This is what it says in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10 Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says, Give it your best shot. I'm good for it, he says. So I want to challenge those of you who haven't made this habitual practice in your life to step into it. Because the Father wants you to have your own personal experiences of his meeting your needs. On that note,